You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys here today. If you've got your Bibles, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. We started a series uh, last Sunday entitled Vision Culture, and the whole premise is for you and I as believers to really begin to understand and catch a glimpse for God's vision for our culture. And so uh, to do that, we go to his word. You know, we are in a, in a culture now that's convinced that, you know, we can let politics or pop culture determine what is right and what is wrong. And so the main question that we want to wrestle with through this series is, does God's vision for culture shape your values or does your political view shape your God? And so we want to wrestle with that, and we want to understand that it's from the gospel, it's from God's word, that we then establish our morals and our convictions. We don't watch CNN or Fox News, listen to politicians, and then form opinions. We listen first and foremost to the word of God, and out of his word, out of the truth of the gospel, we can then have a firm stance on various issues. And so Uh, We live in the greatest nation the world has ever seen, and because of that, we have the right to vote. And so when we vote in a couple of weeks, we want to go into those voting booths with uh, an education and with an informed mind on some very tough issues that our country is facing. And so last week, we talked about biblical sexuality. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about the sanctity of life. Next week, we're going to talk about racism. These are very divisive issues in our country. And so, um, I I don't know if you got to watch the the debate this past week, but finally, in the, the, the third and final debate, the question of abortion was raised. And so, we learned a lot about uh, the candidates and where they stand and, and what some of those issues are. I was happy that we finally heard that conversation. It's kind of been in the background this year. Uh, we've not heard a lot about it. And so we as believers need to continue to put this on the front burner and uh, establish our role in this fight. And so as, we were list- as I was listening to the debate, not only does Hillary Clinton and, and the Democratic Party support abortion, but she was actually for partial birth abortion. And so that conversation uh, took place. And so um, I know we've got some younger folks in the room today, but they need to know what our government leaders want to do in some cases. And and, and so essentially a partial birth abortion is, is as a baby is being born, as long as a portion of the baby is still in the birth canal, the doctor can kill the child. This is barbarism at its worst. Right now in America, it's banned. There are laws against partial birth abortion, but make no mistake about it, uh, that fight is not over. You have people like Hillary Clinton and many others who would fight to overturn those laws and see that as a reality. And so I think the issue for us is critical. We see statistics that 42 million abortions take place around the world. It's 115,000 abortions every single day. In America alone, statistics tell us 2,500 abortions take place every single day. Yes, over the last uh, four or five years, the numbers of abortions have decreased, so things are getting better. And yet 2,500, 2,500 deaths of the unborn every day is still way too many. One is too many. 
I'm going to assume today that everybody holds the conviction that murder is wrong. Um, God specifically tells us that we should not murder one another. And so I want to get right to the question when we think about the sanctity of life. And, and the, the, the real question today is, what makes a person a person? The real issue and really the question that we have to wrestle with in our culture today is, who or what is in the womb? The question for our time is whether an unborn child is a person or if the unborn child is mere property based on whether or not they live inside or outside the womb. A pro-abortionist would call the unborn a fetus, a clump of cells, would call the unborn uterine contents, organic tissue, and then they'll use words that are very near and dear to the American heart, which is words like freedom and choice, words like our right. And so the whole movement has marketed itself as a pro-choice movement. Well, I reject that. I would encourage you to call the movement a pro-abortion movement because I'm pro-choice. I'm choice. I, I, we all have choice in various aspects of life, and that's exactly what they use to try to, try to encourage those who uh, don't understand what abortion really is to jump on that bandwagon. So you'll hear me call this movement the pro-abortion movement today. David Smith, in his 2012 book entitled Less Than Human, he describes very intelligently how people will dehumanize their enemies before enslaving them, before torturing them, and before killing them. It's wrong to kill people. Most of our culture would say it's wrong to kill people. And yet, everyone would say it's permissible to kill a rat. And that's why Nazi Germany could morally say, you know what, we can kill a Jew. We can kill and exterminate the Jews. Why? Well, because they are rats. And so when a very dark and very very morbid understanding of humanity is accepted, then it's easier to enslave a people. It's easily um, more likely to to kill or torture or rape or use for whatever purpose that you see fit. So you just simply dehumanize them. It's easier to justify killing something that's subhuman, especially if it's legalized. And so a murderous government only, doesn't only need power, it needs a moral argument. A moral argument for why it's okay to do this. So this is what we have seen throughout the generations. And this is what we see with the conception of life in the womb. And we have to be honest as men and women who are pro-life that in the the initial days of a fertilized egg, it it does not look like a human or, or essentially it doesn't look like what you and I think a human should look like. And yet today I want us to understand how God views, even in those first couple of days of conception, what his view, what his opinion, how does he see this person? But you can see how the argument goes. If we can dehumanize what is in the womb, we can begin to make a moral argument that we have the right, we have the choice, 
to do whatever we want with that person. World history has taught us that whoever has the most weapons, the most power, the most money, or the most friends on the Supreme Court get to decide who is a real person and who is not a real person. They don't look like us. There's never been a good reason to persecute or exterminate a group of people. But in fact, over the course of our history, they don't look like us has been enough to prove that certain individuals are subhuman. Those who were in power said that this group of people were not human. And so they were able to say, because they're not human, we can enslave, we can own, we can use and abuse in any way we see fit, because it is our moral right as a superior group of people. The Constitution of 1787 had the three-fifths law. Three-fifths law stated that African Americans were three-fifths the group of white people in a given state. And so we don't have to dive into that today to realize and be reminded that looking and viewing a certain race or group of people as subhuman makes it easier to do whatever a certain group of people who are in power would want to do. Another group of people that the powerful said were subhuman was this group. In this time, it was manifest destiny. That was the mentality and the philosophy of the time. Not held by everyone, but by some of the elite and some of the more powerful and those who had money. Said it was the destiny of America. It was the moral duty of America to expand into the West. To take land and to do whatever we want. Because this group of people is subhuman. So therefore, we have the moral argument and the ability to do and to say whatever we want to say because they're not like us. And then, of course, today, those with the most power, the most money, and the most votes on the Supreme Court say that this group of people are not human. And because they are not viable yet, because they are fetuses, because they're a clump of cells, because they are a blastocyst, then it's okay to take this person's life. A pro-abortion culture has the same rationale as Nazi Germany or pro-slavery America. The pro-abortion culture says that we will decide what life is important, what life is worthy of living, and what life is okay to enslave, what life is okay to persecute, and what life is okay to kill. But a pro-life stance means that we understand that in fact God has created every human being with dignity and should be honored as such. All life is precious. The unborn life matters. The immigrant, the poor, black, white, Native American, Asian, whatever race, the needy, the elderly, those who are terminally ill still have dignity and we must be for life in all cases. Gregory Culp wrote the book, Precious Unborn Humans, and he says this, if the unborn is not a human person, 
No justification for abortion is necessary. If the unborn is a human person, then no justification for abortion is adequate. And I think that's a great way to look at it. If the unborn child is not a person, then we don't really need to argue about it. No justification needed. But if the unborn is really a person, then there is no justification to take his or her life. And so when we come to this issue, we hear the pro-abortionists say, well, women have a right to privacy with their doctors. Well, of course, I, I, would, I would agree with the fact that we have a right to privacy with our doctor, woman and, women and men, but no woman or man should have the right to a private conversation with the doctor how to conspire to kill someone. This movement would also say that women have a right to choose. So choice is the, is the issue. And yet we all agree that we all have certain rights. But those rights are not unlimited rights to do whatever we want to do. If you wake up late for work tomorrow, you do not have the right to speed, to run traffic lights, and to use your car to ram people off the road to get out of your way. When your baby grows up to be a toddler and he, and he or she becomes more expensive and harder to handle, you do not have the right to give them back to the hospital, right? <laughs> Can't do that. And when they're teenagers, maybe we should think about it. I don't know. But see, it doesn't matter what reason you may have to support a, a pro-abortion stance. All reasons fail if the unborn in the womb is a person. So we turn to the gospel. We turn to the gospel to see how God views the unborn. So look at verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1. We read this last week. It's so important when it comes to human dignity and the sanctity of life. Let me read it. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So here we see that all people, all of mankind is created in the image of God. The Latin is imago Dei. It means that you and I have a special dignity that we in fact can understand how we are meant to live because of this image. It means that we are in the image or in the likeness of God. We are like God and so we represent God because we are image bearers. And as an image bearer of God, we have dignity, we have purpose, we have life, and we should be respected as his creation. So every person must be treated with this dignity. Every race, every person with a disability, elderly, seriously ill, mentally handicapped, homeless immigrants, children not yet born deserve protection, and we should honor them as human beings. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, he says, there are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. I love that. Everyone in this room is a unique creation of God. Every single one of you is different. Every single one of us in this room was fearfully and wonderfully made by our creator. 
and he has given us this dignity as an image bearer. Nothing in creation is said to have the image of God except for humans. Secondly, we see first and foremost that all people were created in the image of God. But then secondly, God knew you before you were conceived. God knew you before you were even conceived. Look at Jeremiah 1.5. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. See, God knew you before you were even conceived. This is mind-blowing that before we even were a fertilized egg, even before we began to be formed in the womb, God knew who you were. And not only did he know you, he also consecrated you. So he had a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. God does not give a plan and a, pur- and, and a purpose for something that is just a blob of cells. He knew you before you were even conceived. Thirdly, you became a person at the moment of conception. At the moment of conception, you should be viewed as a person. Now, for that, let's turn to Psalm chapter 39. My favorite psalm, I think, in, in, in all of the psalms. But in this chapter, we see so many awesome things. But beginning of verse 13, we see how God truly sees and forms in the womb. Here's what he says. He says, for you, speaking to God, for God formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Listen to this. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. (laughs) We learned so much here. He says, you formed me in, in, in the inward parts. You knitted me together. So this idea that God is forming and creating life in the womb is a personal connection and relationship between our creator and human beings, even in the womb. He says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully May look at verse 15 when he says, intricately woven. Now, if you know anything about medicine, or if you do just a little bit of research, you see just how intricately woven the, the, our, our formation really is in the womb. Every single day, just the thousands and thousands of, of, of creative, inward, amazing, scientific and medically things that are taking place in the human. It is mind-blowing. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Scientists may say that unformed substance is a blastocyst. It's what they call a person in the first five days of our existence. Certainly, it is an unformed substance. And yet, he says that every one of our days was formed Even though nothing has taken place, every one of our days has been set forth. Why? Because God has given us dignity and a purpose, even in the moment of conception. Even when we may not even look human. Human in our eyes, we are human. 
at that moment of conception, God uniquely is at work in the womb. Whether you call it an embryo, a fetus, viable, no matter what you call it, to end the forming, knitting, miracle-working power of God in the growth of a human being in the womb is murder. Just because you cannot see them with the naked eye does not mean they are not real humans. The Bible says that God calls, he names, he blesses children even while they're in the womb. Look at Galatians 1, Isaiah 49, Luke chapter 1. We see God sees the unborn as precious and he is calling them and naming them and has a relationship with them even before they are born. What's scary about this is even the pro-abortionist movement believe that life begins at conception. Bernard Nathanson, co-founder of one of the most influential abortion advocacy groups of all time called the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws. Pretty clear on what their point is, right? The name has changed a couple of times to make it sound more politically correct, but that's what it was back when it was created. He once served as a medical director at the largest abortionist clinic in America. And in 1974, he said this. Now, 1974, not in 2016 when we have all this new technology to see and, and to understand the newborn or, or, or the unborn. This was in 1974. In an article in the England Journal of Medicine, he states, there is no longer serious doubt in my mind that human life exists within the womb from the very onset of pregnancy. <laughs> Pretty clear. Some years later, he, re <clears throat> he reiterated this belief when he said there is simply no doubt that even the early embryo is a human being. All its genetic coding and all its features are indisputably human. As to being there is no doubt that it exists, is alive, is self-directed, and is not the same being as the mother and is therefore a unified whole. Scary to think this, but in fact, some of the most leading uh, influential people in the pro-abortion movement believe that life begins at conception, and yet they still are willing to say that they can take that life. Faye Waddleton was the longest reigning president of Planned Parenthood, which is the largest provider of abortions in America. And she argued in 1997 in an interview in MS Magazine, she said, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. So any pretense that abortion is not killing is a signal of our ambivalence, a signal that we cannot say, yes, it kills a fetus. So why are trying to hide their stance here? The fact remains that, yeah, it's alive, it's different, it's human. And yet we still have the right to take that person's life. The Bible uses the phrase innocent blood 20 different times throughout the course of the, the, the Bible. And in the context, it's, it's always condemning shedding innocent blood. In Jeremiah 22, 3, it says, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. The alien, those who are foreigners and immigrants, 
do no violence or wrong to them. Very timely for our culture today, right? We are believing lies that all of these immigrants are going to blow up America. Let's not forget that Jesus and his family were immigrants. They had to flee political oppression into Egypt, and thankfully Egypt allowed him into their country. He says the fatherless, so the orphans, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Now, certainly, the most innocent blood that we could think of, other than Jesus Christ, is the unborn. There's simply no debate among honest, informed people that abortion is killing humans. Finally, number four, I would say the gift of life should incite worship. The gift of life should be viewed in light of the gospel, and it should incite worship in our life. He says, I I praise you. Why? Because I am fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. Every person in this room is fearfully and wonderfully made. God determined your parents. He determined your looks. He determined where you would live, and he calls you wonderfully made. Now, some of us are believing the cultural lie that you are not wonderful and that your looks are subhuman because you don't look like Barbie and Ken. And it's that, even that small mindset shift that says beauty looks like this and ugly looks like this leads to a culture of death. Instead of recognizing beauty in every face, every race, every body shape, and realizing that God has fearfully and wonderfully made all of us. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Tell them with passion. You're wonderfully made. And we praise God for how he made you wonderful today. I think the latest technology helps us understand just how amazing uh, God is, is forming life in the womb. At just two and a half weeks, the heart has been formed. And right at week three, the heart starts pumping blood. At week six, the basic facial features have formed in this person. Arms and legs are formed. And by eight weeks after fertilization, the unborn child actually can react to touch. This is 10 weeks. A 10-week-old baby in the womb hands and feet developed, kidneys produced and and working and functioning. The baby's lungs are developed and so he or she is actually inhaling and exhaling the amniotic fluid. Babies at this age have actually been seen sucking their thumbs and at this stage, babies actually have a fingerprint. Your 10-week-old baby could unlock your iPhone 7 today. Eighteen weeks, vocal cords have developed. The baby is perceiving sound and sometimes even um, uh, motion and vibrations. So that when my wife was pregnant, I remember laughing out loud, like as as we're you know just hanging out in the living room. We had a little yappy poodle at the time, and um, she would bark, and then we would see Micah's stomach just kind of kind of shift and shake and. And I always told my kids, even in the womb, you hated that dog. <laughs> they did. They never got along. God rest their soul. 
20 weeks post-fertilization, the unborn child will actually react to painful stimuli. So doctors who are doing corrective surgery have witnessed babies in the womb actually flinching and, and, and recoiling away from sharp objects in the womb. At 23 weeks, this is 23 weeks. Amazingly, at 23 weeks, this baby has a 15% chance of survival outside the womb with a little help. And every week after that, chances skyrocket. 24 weeks, it's 56%. At 25 weeks, it's almost 80%. The human body is fearfully and wonderfully made. And God is a miracle-working God. I know stories in the room. Some of you had your babies premature and and you call them your miracle child because God fearfully and wonderfully made them. Should incite worship. It should create in us an awe of who God is. We don't even understand how all of these brain cells are, are being formed and all of these organs are being formed and created and all of these neurons are connecting in brains and, and developing and growing and We don't even get it. We don't even understand it. And yet it is a human being. It's a miracle. And God says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that should incite us to worship. And it should incite us to have a vision for culture that is different than our current culture of death. And so here are a few things that I'll close with today. For us to really begin to assume God's vision for our culture, you and I in the room today need to first and foremost begin to speak and be a voice for the voiceless. Be a voice for the voiceless, the innocent. So we speak out. Speak out in in your conversations. Don't be ashamed of your stance. Don't be afraid that if you share in compassion your stance, that one should look down on you. Do it in compassion. Realize that many people are affected by this. Statistically, a lot of women even in the room have been affected by this. We understand that. So in compassion, we speak up even on social media with compassion. We write cards. We we write letters. We send emails to our government officials and our local leaders, letting them know what our stance is and why. Jesus' words in Matthew 25 say it really well. He says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom of prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So every time we speak up for the voiceless, every time we fight for a culture of life, we are fighting for the least of these. It doesn't matter if a child is in the womb or outside the womb, giving voice to those who don't have a voice is standing up for them and standing up for the least of these. In fact, we are standing up for Jesus when we support a pro-life movement. Jesus said, love your neighbor. Now, isn't the unborn our neighbor? 
Secondly, I would say we as believers today, in order to push back this darkness, have to serve in justice and in compassion ministries. In justice and compassion and mercy ministries. And so this is important because there is a whole generation that continues to struggle with pregnancies at a young age. In fact, we see um, statistics tell us that there are three main reasons why people would have an abortion. And so this comes from the the Guttmacher Institute. They say three reasons. 25% say that having a baby would interfere with work or school responsibilities, and so they would have an abortion. 25% say they can't afford it, and then 50% say they don't want to be a single parent or they're having problems with their husband or um, their pregnancy. And so, so this is why mercy ministries are so important. Things like the Pregnancy Resource Center of our community, one of the first organizations we ever partnered with as a church. Um, Chris McCarge was the director then, and, and, and so we, we partner with them. We send volunteers to them. We support them financially. Why? So that when they are experiencing these conversations with young women who are dealing and struggling with this decision, they can speak truth in their life. They can show support. They can show and teach how God views the human life in the womb. We partner with things like, say, families and even foster care programs. Why? Because we are pro-life. We want to fight for those who are unborn and even in, in situations where mom and dad can't be with their kids for legal reasons or, or whatever trouble they're going through. And so we partner with organizations like that that can, that can bring life into those situations and love on kids in those situations. And, and so by doing that, we're saying that, yeah, you know, there are ways for moms and dads to have support and, and, and for moms even who are single or even who might be poor, they have an opportunity to have help in this culture. Recovery groups, every semester we offer groups that, that help people deal with their past and, and whatever past that is, whatever pain or regret or, 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 or issues that they're facing. And so get involved in those and serve in those ways. And then finally, I would say, especially to those in the room who have personally been affected by abortion. Receive God's peace, his forgiveness, and his joy. You know, if you've had an abortion, or maybe you're a guy that supported that decision, or for whatever reasons you were a part of it, first of all, you've been really brave today. I know it's difficult to hear a sermon like this, but I also want you to know That your past doesn't define you. That what's taken place in your life is not the end of your story. That through the hope of Jesus Christ on the cross, your sins are forgiven. If you have become a Christian, you've given your life to Christ, Christ took your sins to the cross and he paid for those sins. You have complete forgiveness. You have the opportunity to walk this spiritual journey with Jesus, growing in joy and growing in hope, right? And so one of the great things about how the Lord works in our life is that he will take the pain of our past and he will use that pain in such a way that we can be a voice of change in the present and in the future. 
And so sometimes those who've experienced a certain pain are oftentimes the loudest and clearest voice to those who are struggling with the same issue. And so you have hope. If you've experienced an abortion and you've never given your life to Christ, I want to encourage you today. There is forgiveness, there is hope, and there is joy in your future. As you confess those sins and confess your need for a Savior, confess that to Christ. You receive him into your life, and and he takes you on this journey of freedom. Now, you need to wrestle with this with other people. You cannot do this alone. You need the help of relationships And so small groups, recovery groups, maybe one-on-one counseling, maybe a mentor from our church could speak into your life and walk alongside of you. Maybe you would get involved in a ministry that we partner with here called Deeper Still. Deeper Still is an organization that helps women and men with an abortion-wounded heart. They have several resources, but one of the greatest things they do is a weekend experience. It's a two-day experience, three-day experience. You go not far from here in the mountains, and they walk you through a healing process like none other. The people I talk to and they go through this, the people that we have sent to support uh, that weekend, I, the stories I hear is amazing. Now, we, we give to them. We, we, we provide um, um, uh, and bless them with like these little goodie bags and all these little things that they get for their weekend. And so Foothills is, is in that and, 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 and present in that ministry. And I want to encourage you, we've got information in the lobby, we've got some things and resources that I would want you to be aware of, maybe to either help or to experience. And then I would also encourage you today that as you leave, as as God has brought up issues in your life, and um, maybe you need someone to pray with you today, maybe you need someone just to encourage you today, or you've got something on your mind, we always have what we call the care and prayer room. It's immediately to the left when you walk out of the room. We've got counselors in there and encouragers in there that just want to encourage and walk with you and pray with you. And they're going to be there today following the conclusion of this service like they are every single week. And for whatever reasons, maybe today you need to walk in there and say, you know what, I need Jesus. I need forgiveness. I want to begin this journey of hope and of freedom in my life. You know, one of the partners at our church that has just been an integral part in Foothills Church from really the very beginning when we were meeting at the school here in town uh, is Tina Boyett and her husband Paul. Uh, Tina has a great story. God has grown her in tremendous ways over the last uh, seven years at, at, through and in Foothills Church. And I want her to share a little bit of her story today and allow her story to bless you and then close today with no matter where you're at, no matter with what sin that you're dealing with today, that in Jesus Christ, it is well, let's take a look at this video. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.